0: Well, okay, I introduced this idea of a plant, water, and harvest model. There are a lot of businesses with a flashlight and a dark room, but what you really need
1: is to turn on the lights and illuminate the whole room, and that's really hard to do. You're only looking
0: at a fraction of the entire scene. If you take action saying, oh, look, everybody loves me, therefore they're going to keep loving me, you're not going to find they're going to buy your products. From Orion X, this is the Marketing Podcast. Marketing has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately, more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs.
1: Hi, everybody. Marketing Podcast. This is Episode 24. And this is Shaheen Khan with Doug Garnett. How are you, Doug? I'm doing well, Shaheen. All right. So as all of you may know by now, Doug and I spend like hours in our pre-meeting before we press the record button. So by the time we get here, we have like 85 different topics we could talk about. Doug, start us off. Where do you want to go today?
0: I wanted to start with a truth about marketing success that I think bothers or makes it a difficult field for many people. Namely that you know, companies and a lot of people in other disciplines want to ask, What's the most important thing in marketing? And have an answer. It's this or it's that. And the reality in marketing is it doesn't work that way. So for example, I saw a recent study that came out and said, allocated percentages of influence to each of the things leading up to an ad campaign. Planning, research, the creative, the media buy, all these things. And it said, okay, here's how important each of those are. And it's really kind of bull. Because, for example, no matter how great your creative is, if nobody ever sees the ad, it doesn't matter. So creative and media are tied at the hip. And to say one's most important, I can't do that. So I think in reality, marketing is a place in almost every aspect of it. It's a thing where you have to succeed in the balance of it all, rather than focusing on this is most important or that's most important. And I think that drives people crazy, but I'm really interested in your thoughts. Because I think we all encounter these perspectives on, you know, how do you deal with this reality of marketing?
1: Yeah. I'm. Maybe this was a couple of hours ago when we first talked about this, <laughs> but I remember you <laughs> saying that maybe you want to write a blog about what success is. So yeah. What is success? When you say business success or marketing success, what does that
0: mean? Yeah. It is real difficult because when you say, what is marketing success? Well, oh, we get into a lot of problems. We go, you know, okay, well, let's, let's just step back to business success. A company is successful over time only if there's enough demand for its products in the future. So that's a first place to start. Oh, Mm -hmm. well, what's that mean? You know, well, okay, let's start deconstructing it. You only have enough demand for your product in five years if between now and five years from now you are developing the right products in order to have the demand at that time. And that you are making money while you do that. And what does that take? Oh, God, okay. Well, we have to have satisfied people. We have to have... And you start building out from that idea and you realize that success itself is an incredibly complex topic, actually. And very nuanced because, you know, it's tricky. Saying so much of success and whether a company is deemed a success is a matter of perspective. You know, there are companies deemed a success who maybe shouldn't be. Well, and also the question of what the business strategy the organizational
1: objective was the success may be very different for a nonprofit whose quote products really are very Mm -hmm. different from a big time for profit for a government agency for a non-governmental organization all those have different objectives and all of them need some kind of marketing so then marketing success becomes a function of the organization's objectives strategy And what problem are we trying to solve that we can use marketing to solve it? And that's really how a lot of marketing starts. What problem are you trying to solve? And I'll tell you what the marketing mix and budget and scope is for you to solve it. If you think of it that way, then ultimately that leads to a set of metrics.
0: Well, it does, although I want to go back to, you said marketing mix. Well, a marketing mix, that means product, price, distribution, place, you know how it's sold, and communication about it. And the reality of marketing success is those are all tightly interconnected. So when you change the product, the price has to be reevaluated and so does the place it's distributed and so does your communication. But if you change the communication, you know, you have to look at everything else. I mean, you've got these four factors in marketing that are all very tightly interconnected and you can't say product is more important than communication. I've seen thousands of products sitting on company shelves because they weren't communicated They're excellent products but nobody ever told the customer they existed and so they didn't sell and each one of them has multiple if not several variations
1: that Uh you may want to employ so the marketing mix ends up being a subset of two dozen different vehicles that you have in front of you so what is the metric and then okay now that let's say you did come up with a set of metrics are they measurable Okay. And if they are measurable, how comprehensively can you measure
0: them? Yes. And that all is really, really difficult. I mean, as we were talking about this a little bit ago, one of the inherent problems is that even if you come up with a measure and what you say is, okay, this measure tells us how effective our advertising was. You know, well, the truth is at best, that measure is going to tell you about half of what you need about your advertising. It's not really going to tell you how fully valuable it was. It's going to measure a part of it. And as managers and executives, we have to fill in the rest and say, okay, that metric indicates this. Do we believe that it points, you know, north East, west, or south, or north-southeast, or south-northeast, or whatever the, you know. So I think it's really tough because metrics don't represent everything because a metric is essentially like a map. You construct a map for a purpose. So you construct a roadmap to be able to get from point A to point B. If a roadmap is going to be effective, you've got to omit all kinds of real-world detail along the path. And it, a map cannot be effective if you try to include all the detail. Metrics are exactly the same way that the metric is omitting a tremendous amount of information in order to hopefully help you get from point A to point B. It's a little bit harder because I can't test a metric as easily as I can test a map, which is, I tell you, I gave the map to my buddy and say, hey, you got to drive to Seattle. And if they get there, it worked. And if they didn't, Okay, we got a problem. (laughs) Metrics are not quite so simple.
1: So, in fact, part of the problem with metrics is that they're trying to summarize a whole bunch of other metrics into something Mm -hmm. that is a good soundbite, simple, and hopefully relevant to what you really want to measure. So, for many people, it's really revenue and margin. But as we've talked in other episodes, how am I going to measure that? So I'm going to have to measure half a dozen proxies for that. And then I just summarize it by saying that, right? So, And then the other thing is, over what period of time do you want to measure it? What if you do something and it's going to bear fruit a year and a half from now, because your cell cycles are two years long, or you do something and it immediately shows up? Now, some action, the immediate result shows up tomorrow, but the real result may come out sometime later. So short-term versus long-term, comprehensiveness, is it a business-level metric or a department level or a project-level metric? At the end, it comes down to measurement, interpretation, narrative, presentation, and every one of those, an opportunity to inflate, to deflate, to spin it positively, negatively, you know,
0: and at the end, does the boss really like you? (laughs) Um, That's true. Well, I think there's a, you know, one of the things we have to look at is does company management, do the executives know how to treat measures purely as measures? I think that, you know, there's a big difference between being informed by data or being informed by measures and then making judgments based on what we see in all the things we collect information on. And the idea that everything should be data driven. And I kind of Mm. make that distinction because I see far too much drive everything according to the measures instead of simply saying, you know, we're actually pretty fortunate to be able to measure all these things. So let's measure them and then use our human judgment to the best of our ability to try to comprehend what they mean. Yeah. I will say partly I come out of a very odd business myself because in my business, we had very little vision into the pipeline. And to explain that a bit more, I mean, the challenge I had in my business was that it wasn't valuable for us to talk to people very often before they had money approved. Every now and then we had a client who came in and said, would you tell me about how what you do works? And you know, we would charge them money for that, and we'd explain it and we'd do some work with them and then they'd go away and come back in a year or two and say, okay, we want to do a project because we've now budgeted it and things like that. But when you're doing a big effort, which is what we did, we have big projects always. They don't just appear from nowhere. Somebody has to plan the budget, get it signed off all the way up to the board, you know, do all these things. Once that's in place, then we have something to do. Well, let me tell you, looking backwards, you have no idea what's been going on. And from the position inside a company, I could not ever read kind of what was happening out there. So my ability to project forward was extremely limited because what I needed to know is, oh, I wonder how many companies have approved budget for the kind of work that we do. And I could never get that. We weren't a big enough market to have measures. And so it left us in a position where we had to be nimble and watch for things and grasp opportunity But it didn't mean that we could have these nice pipelines where we could project what's going to come down the road in that we did finally get a pipeline when we had one big client who had talked with us about what they were planning for next year. And then we finally had a pipeline to look at. Before then, you know, it was a kind of, well, this is about how much we need. How do we scramble and make sure it happens? Yeah, absolutely.
1: And I think there are many businesses that are in that position because as we've mm-hmm. discussed again in previous episodes instrumenting your business processes to kind of put it in formal definition so that you can then measure things is expensive it's not free and for you to do it on an ongoing basis and to do it accurately and make sure all the specific places that you need are able to provide data
0: is is not for everybody I'd like your walkthrough in the pre-show about what, you know, what is it that would need to be instrumented? Because I think this is the, if you knew everything you needed to know about what was going on in the world in order to predict the future of your business, what would you need to know?
1: Well, I think you start with a fully instrumented sell cycle. The whole customer journey, the entire customer journey, it's a little bit of a, you know, Star Trek-y kind of a thing because there you kind of have a computer that's watching everything and can roll the tape later on and all that but imagine if you had that imagine if you knew that your sales rep met with the customer and they had a good productive meeting and then the customer got an email but didn't read it then got another one and did read it went on the website stayed three seconds went on you know second time read half of a blog and then you know ran into the sales rep at the restaurant all analog but somehow you know let's say you knew all of that then that probably could give you a picture that says, oh, you know, on average, we need to touch the customer five, six times. And every one of those touches contributed. And of course, that's our assumption. And that therefore, every one of them is really important. But if you don't have that view, then it's harder to make that kind of a conclusion, unless you've been doing that business for a very long time. And over many years you've gained that experience.
0: My question is we and I talked about it earlier was what does it cost to build that view? Because I think we get a lot, there's a lot of people marketing products out there, whether it's Salesforce or HubSpot or, you know, any of these kind of on the digital world trying to say, well, we'll give you that view. Or you can put all this stuff in the software and then you have that view. But realistically, what does it take to have that view? What I observe
1: is there are a lot of businesses with a flashlight. In a dark room and they're not wrong that flashlight will illuminate what it is that they're trying to measure and that is very valuable but what you really need is to turn on the lights and illuminate the whole room and that's really hard to do so you end up having a half a dozen flashlights in a big ballroom and therefore you're only looking at a fraction of the entire scene and hopefully you know enough to look in the right places where you then Infer all of that and put it together, it gives you some kind of a descriptive, diagnostic, predictive view. And sometimes it's hard to even describe it, let alone diagnose it, let alone predict
0: it. Yeah, I think, you know, what struck me as you were talking about that through, you know, at one point I hired a group to do outbound lead generation for us, call people and find people with budgets who would be ready to think about our services. And it was a bust. Because you have to get through to the right people. You have to talk about them the right way. And eventually what I figured out is that wasn't going to work. And we ended up doing our best really throughout the entire career of the business with referrals. Because it kind of comes back to that was an effective way to do it. What I found, I think, for leads is for us to just jump into somebody else's process and say, oh, you shouldn't do that. Why don't you do what we're recommending? They were already too far down mentally down the path to doing other things and you can't necessarily change them it's kind of like there's a zen thing in it that you have to accept that if that's what you're up against you know business is filled with all this stuff about ah take control and change the world and you know what's the thing which people say about steve jobs about but a dent in the universe yeah you, you you've warp reality to fit your needs and all those things. But you know what? It doesn't happen always. And if it doesn't happen and you're trying to do it, you're wasting a tremendous amount of effort from it. That is not to say that you shouldn't
1: do it, right? So right. Do, do proceed and try to instrument and digitize. This digitization thing is here to stay. And the more you move towards a digital plus analog kind of, a, is a good thing, but recognize what you don't have and don't let data rule you because data will rule you. And if it's junk data, then you're being ruled by junk.
0: That's true. It really is, and I think that, you know some of this comes back to something I'm beginning to think we need to make clearer and clearer about marketing is that of all the disciplines in business, marketing may be the one most plagued by uncertainty. The reality it's hard. is, it's complicated. what's going to yeah, what's going to happen in a year? I don't know. You know, <laughs> last year sales were this. So I'm hoping this year sales are you know that plus ten percent. And I've got some stuff in play that I think might make that happen. Can I guarantee it? Good God, no. You know, I can't tell you all the stuff that's going to happen between now and then. Well, what about the product? I can't tell you that product's going to, that new product mod's going to succeed. I can't tell you it's going to drive this or that. So there's a lot of uncertainty in marketing. And I think one of the places, as you and I keep talking about, you know, marketing with the C-suite, that's one place of challenge, which is a lot of the C suite jobs have much more planability than marketing does. And so our kind of unusual mix of well, we can plan a lot of things, but we're always working amidst uncertainty is uncomfortable for people who have plenty of certainty around them. It can I think can irritate them.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, speaking of, you
1: know, I kinda like the whole descriptive diagnostic prescriptive, and predictive, the two D's and the two P's thing. But speaking of diagnostics, because that's where some of the complexity shows up, where you observe something and you can't explain it. And there was a paper that was published that, or an article that we are reading mm-hmm. that was talking about organic search is down. Why is it down? Is there a correlation with our ad spend? Is there a correlation with how Google does its kind of our page ranks? And then, of course, there was a really giant correlation with their email marketing, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm.
0: let's talk a little bit about that. All right. Well, so the article, really, I recommend that all of our listeners go find the article. It's in The Drum, and it's written by Samuel Scott, who is a really, really smart guy. He works mostly with small businesses. And so he's much more in touch with some of the realities of how do you make a budget work, because if it's not that big, you got to really make it work. So he wrote this article, and the title is Digital Attribution is Dead. Les tells (laughs) us why marketers need econometrics in 2023. Now, to be clear, that's the title. The content of the article looks at the question of digital attribution, looks at econometrics, and offers the challenges to why econometrics are not going to solve all of our problems. So, uh, you know, even if we all shift to econometrics today, it's not going to solve our problems. It might be useful sometimes. So, But yes, he starts off with having looked at things and he runs into the problems we all run into, which is it's very easy for statistics to say you've got a search problem. Because your leads converted through search are down. But that doesn't mean you have a search problem. And I've worked with some very big budgets where we had this challenge that search would go up and down and people would be like, well, we need to put more in search. We need to put less in search. We need to do this. But then when we would compare search with TV, we would find that search was always down when TV was down and search was always up when TV was up that search and TV were tied, inherently tied. And what Sam found is that that was true in terms of, you know, people look, they looked at Google ad spending, they looked at a whole bunch of stuff around Google ads and found there was a six to 11% correlation that the only correlation that ended up making sense was cold sales emails. And it was this 96% correlation in this case. Now, you got to read the article in order to really comprehend what that might mean, because there's a lot of details I'm jumping over. But it starts this question, so how good is digital attribution? And there's been a lot of discussion lately, and Les Binet has written about econometrics coming in to take over. Personally, I'm not so sure. Econometrics is a lovely name. Boy, it sounds good. Makes me feel like a scientist to say I do econometrics. On the other hand, once I read through what he's talking about, which is trying to look at the marketing mix and model how much of this you use and how much of that do you use, I begin to lose my enthusiasm for the sexy word.
1: Yeah. I think the predictive capabilities of what we want maybe is a little bit farther out. But Mm -hmm. to be able to diagnose a problem, as we saw from what their article is they still had to rely on some data to get to that diagnostic and they could describe right. the problem organic search is down what do we do but then they had to actually rely on other data to see what is correlated however the real critical piece to me is that they actually were doing email marketing what if they were not doing email marketing they would never have found the problem so to me the solution is the expansion of the marketing mix like we were talking about before those emails seemed to hit the mark. So clearly they were part of a campaign that resonated with the audience. I don't know whether these were activation campaigns or nurturing or branding, Mm -hmm. but somehow they translated into the kind of traffic that Google would consider organic, even though they were instigated by something else. And then I think they mentioned this, but that's also obviously true that a lot of people have ad blockers And they have other sort of plugins that prevent you from knowing how they showed up. So really, if you are unable to actually instrument the process, you have to know that. And you have to have enough data to be able to triage your way into some kind of a
0: diagnostics. Well, I think the challenge, and this is really, you know, this is part of the attribution issue, is that we're kind of, well, okay, I introduced this idea of a plant, water, and harvest model. Mm -hmm. So if you think Mm -hmm. about fields, if you're growing wheat, of course, there's more to it than that, but let's simplify it and talk about it. You plant the wheat, you water it, you know, kind of nurture it, and then you harvest it. So if you plant, nurture, and harvest, the problem we have is that a lot of the, the attribution stuff is measuring harvest, in a sense. It measures a tiny bit of the nurturing, and it does nothing for us on planting. And so if we have to plant, nurture, and then harvest the people buying our product, we've got a problem with pure attribution. The trick is I don't find econometrics to be any better because we get left, I think, with this big wide open question about planting. You know, we can learn a fair amount about harvesting. We can learn eh, quite a bit about nurturing, and actually I would suspect that econometrics fills that out a bit more perhaps than does attribution modeling, but we still know almost nothing about planting. So the Sam Scott article goes on, and it goes down further, talks to the Ehrenberg Bass people, to Byron Sharp, and there's a link in it to an article that I highly recommend you download. There's a PDF of an article from the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, and it's John Dawes and other people from Ehrenberg. And it looks at econometric modeling and tells you where there are challenges in it. And one of the challenges is you don't know much about what I would call the planting model. You know, how do Mm. you get people at first the idea of your product? If somebody starts from not knowing about your product at all, how do you plant the idea in their head? And then how do you remind them you exist? Because if it's a two-year cycle from when you plant the idea to when you harvest, Over those two years, you have to have other contacts. And what are those contacts? Is it a TV ad that reminds me you exist? Of course, you know, they do a lot of consumer goods work. But for B2B, is it that encounter with the sales guy at the restaurant or seeing you at the trade show or, you know, those kinds of things? What is it that happens that now every one of those contacts is a reinforcement, but an unmeasured one? And we can't attribute that all into a nice, neat model that says, if you do all this stuff, it works perfectly. And looking backwards, we can't analyze the impact of each of those things. Out of somebody eventually deciding, yes, I'm going to buy your product, how much of what percentage of that eventual decision to buy comes from having run into you at the trade show? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think that's really well said.
1: Yeah. So really, one piece of what you're saying is, do you understand your sales cycle? Because if you don't understand your sales cycle, it's really hard to do marketing anyway. Now, let's go from way pre-sales to post-sales. You now have customers, and now you're trying to figure out whether they're happy how do you do that there was a whole article thread on yeah.
0: customer satisfaction let's conclude yeah. with that one so apologies to listeners who are not quite so into measures and how do you get but on the other hand <laughs> this has to be our work in marketing this is what we do in marketing is try to do things but we have to know that they work somehow so here's the latest one a guy named Chris Carr on Twitter put out a, a post saying I'm looking for any available research on the impact of customer satisfaction on brand preference. Does good previous experience make someone more likely to choose that brand? and can that be quantified? And there was a, he uh, tagged uh, John Dawes and, and Byron Sharp and some other people. And the conversation was very interesting because what we learned through the conversation is no there's not a strong correlation of any type there. There seems to be some, there seem to be independent little studies that'll say, oh, it's brilliant. If everybody loves you, they're all going to buy you in the future. But net out, you know, with serious studies, they don't find much correlation between customer satisfaction and brand strength. Now, First thing to do is say what is that? Yeah, what are they? What yeah, are they exactly. Talking do so, you want to go there? Or?
1: But no, I was just going to pose that. You know, so how do they define satisfaction?
0: Well, that's the trick here, right? Is when you say customer satisfaction, we're talking about some kind of a survey. Usually, that's what it is. So you go out and you do surveys amongst customers. However, you do it, and they rate you on a scale of you know zero to 100, 0 to ten, you know some kind of scale, and that you say, oh, see, look, our customers are satisfied now. You might have them rank you on seven different things, but it's still the same thing that you're asking for rankings and putting that in. The difference is when asked about this question about brand, John Dawes came back and I asked him specifically when he says brand loyalty, what does that mean? And the answer is purchases. So the question is, you've got kind of the soft thing of people raising their hands Brand love. And then you've got the hard question of that's lovely, but will you like, will you love me enough in the future to buy my product again? And what they find is there's not correlation between the survey asking whether or not you love the product and your future purchase habits. So we define satisfaction. And I think right there, that's part of the
1: problem because you certainly could define satisfaction that's a little bit more strongly correlated with future purchases. And Satisfaction with what? Maybe you're dissatisfied about X, but you're really good with Y?
0: Well, and there's a lot of products we buy that we just buy them. And we don't really think much about that. I mean, I always challenge people with like, okay, McCormick's makes a lot of spices. You probably have them in your cupboard. How brand loyal are you to McCormick's? Yes, crickets. You know, who's McCormick's? Uh, Well, they're a company that makes spices. (laughs) And people who really follow it will know that. But you've got this challenge of, okay, so what does satisfaction mean? And how, I mean, I think your question, what is satisfaction? That's probably the place to start. Can we determine a useful satisfaction? You know, in market research, we always talked about actionable, which is it's something you can take action on and trust that the results will be what you expect. And I think what we're learning here is that the soft customer satisfaction of ratings isn't actionable. If you take action saying, oh, look, everybody loves me, therefore they're going to keep loving me, you're not going to find that they're going to buy your products. So you have to get at it some other way.
1: But should you maybe also segment the customers? Because there are customers who take that stuff a lot more seriously than others, like your McCormick's example. Maybe there is an really a connoisseur kind of a customer who says, you know, if I'm buying this particular spice, that's the place to go. If you want this other thing, these other two brands are okay and interchangeable. There are those, in which case, you know, that's additional insight you should get that maybe you're missing.
0: But I think you can also get at it in a sense of, I mean, so now what you're talking about is you need to look at their customer satisfaction within context. So for example, exactly. I mean, let's take this idea. So if somebody rates you at a nine out of 10, that's lovely, but what that means as far as future purchase is going to depend tremendously on context. So maybe they don't buy in the future because they only bought the product once and they weren't ever going to rebuy. I mean, I bought cumin and I never cook with cumin, so I'm never going to buy it again. And so then you might say, well, look, I got low satisfaction. Well, but you could treat those customers differently if you knew that. I might segment them in terms of behavior, right? right. I've got customers who are regular cooks. That kind of customer, um, Yeah. Yeah, that kind of customer. Okay, so you know what? They're not going to have tremendous brand loyalty. They're going to buy their spice based on what's on the shelf in the store. And they might have skewed a little bit by what the spices look like on that shelf, how good the display is, but that's about it. Then you've got customers who are gourmets, who talk about the ingredients of everything they cook and know it in great detail. That's a behavior. Well, those people are going to consider spices in a different way. And so you could get out of that one. I guess that's what I mean by context, right? Right. Is that person who cares about every ingredient down to the last knit. And I've got a good friend who does. Oh, God, he'll talk wax poetic about different kinds of wheat. He makes a lot of bread. <laughs> and boy, it's just phenomenal bread. Oh, that's and a big
1: deal. You're right for those guys. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. And so that makes a lot of sense. And so therefore, he's the kind of guy who finds something that works (laughs) and then uses it quite a bit. But that's a very different customer from me buying some flour to uh, throw onto a plate that I put the canned biscuits on.
1: Yeah. So I managed to turn customer satisfaction into a product segmentation, product marketing. (laughs) Why don't you have a premium product, a loyal customer Mm -hmm. product, and somebody who's going to like triad product. Okay. that's That's good.
0: Yeah. I mean, summing this one up, I think the challenge we have is first, we have to admit that metrics are one-dimensional. They do not work in a three dimensional world. They are measuring a dimension and they're very useful to us, but measures do that. And they're kind of aids, but they don't measure the whole world. So when you talk about customer satisfaction or any of these other topics, you've got to think about the whole world. And, you know, that's much harder. And once you get into the whole world, it's difficult because we get to a lot of answers like, I don't know. But that leads us back in a way to the the article that Samuel Scott wrote. And he opens it saying, what's better, information that's cheap and wrong or information that's expensive and accurate? And what I might say and add to that is, what about information that is vague and uncertain? but accurate Mm. because there are a fair number of places in marketing that that's all you can
1: get yeah exactly i think that really is the challenge okay so we did not talk about competitive intelligence risk analysis and management critical thinking malcolm gladwell (laughs) so we're going to do all of those
0: next time so thank you everybody (laughs) thank you doug absolutely shaheen and thanks to all our listeners that's it for this episode of The Marketing Podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comment section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.